Well, hello there, ladies and gents. Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, and he needs no introduction. If you're in the ketogenic community, you know who he is, so I'm not going to dive into that, but I just wanted to say before we get into this that his work has had a profound impact on my life and what I've done with it, and I'm, I know that it has many others as well, so I really, really appreciate him taking the time out of his busy schedule to sit here and talk with me. Hope you enjoy the conversation. We dive into a little bit of everything. We dive into performance, the ketogenic diet. We dive into a little bit of his background. What what got him into the space? We talk about we talk about his personal interests, like talk about his cows and his his farm. We talk about who he is. So I thoroughly enjoy the conversation. I know you will as well. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy. We are live, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully well. I appreciate you taking the time talking with me. I appreciate being on. I, I think I want to start this conversation with a token of gratitude and appreciation because, in all honesty, my foray into the keto space was spurred on by your initial podcast with Tim Ferriss. Do you remember what year that was? Yeah, uh... I think it was about 2014 or 15. Pretty good while back. That was my first introduction to keto, and, and man, like I listened to that, and I knew it. I was doing something along those lines. I was following John Kiefer's backloading protocol, uh, but then I stumbled yeah. on that podcast, and I just removed the carbs entirely, and that kind of started my whole journey into what I'm doing now, so thank you for that. Well, great. Well, thanks for following me. Absolutely. So I kind of want to just dive into a little bit of, I mean, you you need no introduction to the keto space, but I'd love to to learn more about you as a person, man. Like, tell me about the cows on your farm. Tell me about, you know, just the stuff you do on a day-to-day life outside of the keto space. Like, there's so many podcasts that you've, you know, been requested to be on, and you're diving into beta-hydroxybutyrate and ketone esters. I want to hear a little bit more behind the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh yeah, so my wife and I, we own a farm uh, out in uh, Florida, not too far from the university and sort of just, just outside the city limits of Tampa. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now we just have uh, six cows and we uh, we also have about a little, about 50 some acres of forest. So we do forestry mm-hmm. and what's known as uh, transitioning to what's called silviculture where we will have animals, uh, livestock animals grazing among the trees that we're growing. And we want to do like a combination of uh, pine trees and, and, you know, natural hardwoods that grow in the area. So we do that. And I grew up farming. And, you know, over the years, I wanted to get back to living on a farm. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the motivation behind that. And I've always just been like an outdoor kind of nature, both my wife and I just love being outdoors in nature. Uh, so we do that. That keeps me busy. I probably log about a good 20 plus hours per week, just, just working on the farm, like minimum. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's kind of like my workout too. Right. Cause, uh, it's just yesterday I was moving a lot of block and then cutting trees and doing some work on the lake and stuff too. So it pretty much, I get a lot of activity doing that. Some people ask me if I do cardio, but, uh, <laughs> I don't, that's, the work that I do outside can be like pretty demanding. So that's kind of like sometimes some days my lifting and my cardio. 
No, I totally, totally get it, man. We have a, a family farm that's been with us for, I guess, five generations now. And we used to run wow. cattle on it, and now it's all uh, pine plantation. So kind of, you know, one uh-huh. spectrum to the other. But, I, I mean, you, you, can, you can burn a lot more calories working on the farm than you can in any gym that I've ever been to. So totally get where you're coming from there. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up, uh, I guess it was about, I was about 11 or 12 when I started working on farms, like riding my bike. To the farms and like you know my my mini bike and dirt bike i was like a little kid just just showing up at farms uh bailing hay and then i uh basically settled on a position probably about 13 or 14 years old on a farm adjacent or connected to my parents property just right next door and then uh for like 10 years i worked on that farm all through college uh, a lot of it was doing bailing hay we grew some potatoes and wheat and soybeans and things like that but a lot of the physical work with bailing hay, like on the hay wagon, loading it in the barn, you know, taking care of customers, loading up their trucks. So that was pretty, pretty tough work. And I think it kind of laid the foundation of just uh, being like farm strong, I guess you would say. Absolutely. So so what is this concept of the cattle grazing in the forestry? Is it just kind of some, you know, biodiversity feedback loop that you're creating here? Yeah. Uh, well, we bought, we purchased our farm God, it's going on like two years ago now, almost. And it was intensively farmed uh, cucumbers and zucchini, and before that, like strawberries. And mm-hmm. they use a lot of chemicals of irrigation and things like that. And we're, so we're all set up for that with the big wells and the pumps and everything. But I wanted to phase that out and start repairing the soil. Because right now, we just have dirt, <laughs> really, in, in areas. So, uh, because most of it was really intensively farmed and fertilized and everything just to get these like cash crops. So I sort of did away with all that and bought a whole bunch of telephone poles and cut them up and made about a 10 acre area, a smaller area, uh, fenced in and, get, and got some cows. And now they are grazing the land that used to be intensively farmed and we're growing you know, grass on there and they're eating it and the cows are doing their thing, you know, eating, pooping. And it's, you know, we're starting to get some rain now. So it's starting to like actually build and produce soil instead of the dirt that was there. And it's going to probably take about three to five years to really build up the soil, or at least in this particular area that I'm talking about to where we can maybe transition, do some organic farming. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you're not eating the cattle at all, right? Uh, no, not not at this point. So uh, these are kind of like, you know, we do intend to maybe breed cows. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the ones that we have now, each one is very unique. It's kind of rescued. <laughs> we have a we, I say a motley crew of cows. We have like different breeds and each one like has a story behind it and they were going to slaughter. So we kind of rescued them and we have a Brahmin cow that uh, are person that we're partnering with is going to probably breed up a line of them and we have some zebu miniature zebu cows and we're thinking about like breeding them up as more companion animals for people who have land and want to basically get on the green belt and just have like cows to you know uh graze and maintain their property they actually uh alleviate a lot of work on my end because they keep the grass down otherwise they'd have to be on the tractor mowing all Mm -hmm. day they do we let them like in the morning i let them out and they just graze throughout our whole property not just in the 10 acres that i have fenced off and that actually decreases my workload a lot because 
they just munch and eat and and keep the grass down. So, uh, but we do plan, you know, to do some breeding and, and get some more cows. And, you know, I what I'm probably against would be eating our own cows. Like if we do <laughs> raise them for slaughter, we would let them grow to like the ripe old age and, uh, and send them off. But I'd feel weird because we do get kind of connected to at least the cows we have. Uh, can't say that would be the case if we have hundreds, you know, in the future, but uh, for right now, we're just kind of learning the ropes on all this. Totally, totally. We have, uh, we don't have any cows now, but we have a bunch of lamb and, you know, we'll, uh-huh. we'll slaughter the lamb and, and have lamb, but it, it's it's kind of a, it's interesting crossroads, man. Like you, if you get too connected, it makes it that much harder to, to make that process complete. So I totally respect, you know, wanting uh-huh. to keep it in the green belt for now and just focus on breeding them. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, these cows are pretty smart animals. They have routines now. We just watch them play with our dogs and stuff. And they're very docile, but at the same time, they're really smart. <laughs> or they really, they, they learn, you know, over time and uh, to respond uh, to different things. We can call them uh, if they're, they have, they have very set routines too. They'll come out and go through one area and, uh, and they know, you know, our intentions, if we're walking out just based upon my, my, it's almost like they can read their intentions. They know when you're about to give them some cattle cubes as treats mm-hmm. and they know when you're going to move them to the next field or let them out just by, by their body language. I feel like they can read my mind sometimes. So they're pretty in- intuitively smart animals. Yeah. I feel like cattle always get a bad rap and they just, people assume that they're, they're not very intelligent, but if you spend much time with any wildlife, really, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing the habits they form and just like their their ability to pick up on certain social cues, both within the herd and with you know from people. Yeah, yep, yep. And it's, it's really fun to watch their dynamics too, especially when we get some new cows and watch them sort of you know get in with a breed. And there's definitely like a pecking order, but they all stay together and they're all. Uh, they all get along very well, so at least the cows we have now. So I'm curious if you pretty much were raised. I didn't know that about your background, but if you like, if your parents were doing this, you know, you've always had this burning desire to get back to this. Like, what was the uh, the motivation behind you know diving deep into the wonderful world of you know the ketogenic lifestyle? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I was in biology and I wasn't very good in school to be honest. But when I took biology. Uh, probably my senior year, I took like a more advanced biology course. Uh, I was also into weight training. Mm-hmm. So biology and physiology was a means for me to sort of understand my body so I can leverage that knowledge and translate it into building more muscle, building more strength, doing better on the football field, I played football at the time. And, uh, you know, I think it's coming from like being not so great of a student to like doing fairly well in that class and then really not knowing what I was going to do after high school. So I did like a community college, but then I did really good in those classes and then quickly transferred to Rutgers university. And I was, you know, I majored in nutrition and then I did sort of well in college, but realized there wasn't a whole lot of jobs in nutrition at the time in the early to mid 1990s. Uh, so I majored, I double majored in biology and, uh, and I was thinking, well, maybe I'll go to med school. And I, and I realized, well, I need some, some kind of research in the lab. So I decided to work 
uh, in a neurobiology lab. And, uh, and the more I got into doing undergraduate research, the more I realized, well, like, maybe this could be my path. And at the time, my mentor encouraged me to do a PhD. And, uh, and I kind of took a year, a half a year off to just explore different things and to read up and just do some, to work as like a lab assistant. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed basic science, neuroscience research. And so I decided to, to major in uh, neuroscience and physiology. And I got into diving at the time, scuba diving mm-hmm. and, and more advanced courses. And then kind of long story short, I, I, once I finished my PhD, my postdoctoral fellowship was funded by the military and the Office of Navy Research. And their, their thing was they were funding me to understand oxygen toxicity seizures at the limitation to Navy SEAL diving using a closed circuit rebreather. They, don't, they didn't know why these seizures occurred and you know how to prevent them. So, uh, so I delved more into pharmacology of this, but realized that the ketogenic diet, which I was kind of vaguely familiar with at the time, this goes back into early 2000s, uh, I was sort of vaguely familiar at the time, but then realized it was actually used for epilepsy and a wide variety of seizure disorders. Mm-hmm. So then I sort of transitioned away from diet or away from drugs and pharmaceuticals to harnessing the power of nutritional ketosis as a countermeasure uh, against oxygen toxicity seizures. So as a way that could make military diving safer and potentially if it's sort of you know engineered in the right way uh, to enhance the performance. And we work on various uh, ketogenic supplements too that may have uh, potential to do that. But we're doing that research right now. And on, like on a personal level, I'm assuming you were still training heavy throughout this whole time during your research and, and kind of experimenting with yourself on how this diet was impacting your performance? Yeah, I, I would say that my scientific interest interest was like parallel my personal interests. So the things that I was trying in the lab in cell culture systems, ultimately in animal model systems, you know, I was like doing research on myself too. Mm-hmm. And I was doing blood monitoring, you know, various diet formulations, uh, different technologies to measure, you know, different biomarkers. And, uh, and I've always, you know, maintained a pretty active, uh, more just recreational, like powerlifting, bodybuilding. But that, that is what really saved me through undergrad and graduate school. It, it was like a stabilizing influence when things got hard. Mm-hmm. I would just kind of work out more and it just kind of saved me on many occasions. So, and the more I trained, the more discipline I became with my diet. And then that discipline sort of parlayed or trans tr- had a translatable effect onto my studies. So the more organized and, uh, you know, uh, regimented I became with my diet and my training and, uh, that that sort of mindset carried over to my academics, and I think that really helped me in the academic world. Hundred percent agree. I feel like the only reason I'm a successful, you know, quote unquote successful businessman now is because of all the like life lessons I learned in the sport of bodybuilding, and you know, just being super yeah. regimented and disciplined with just your meals, your nutrition, your training. Like if you have that as a solid base, 
<clears throat> then you can pretty much like even the worst day is okay if you have that one thing accomplished because then you don't ever go backwards you're at least moving the needle forward exactly yeah even in the lab it's funny you mentioned that like sometimes just things don't work actually most of the time with experiments like just like something doesn't work or you get negative results and i don't know you just have a bad day in the lab and you know i could uh go to the gym or nowadays my gym's in my barn at home and i get home and i worked out and it neutralizes anything that was bad during the day and you know and i'm just so much more at ease totally. so uh, yeah it, uh, I try to work out pretty much every day now. I, you know, do two or three days a week, like relatively heavier weights. And then the other days are sort of like active recovery where I'll do body weight exercises, like chin-ups, dips, lots of pull-ups. Uh, but I basically hit the weights now about three days a week, and I do more accessory movements on the quote-unquote off days. So I'd love to dive into the rabbit hole here because, you know, I get asked a lot about, bodybuilding as it relates to you know the ketogenic diet uh and I've, I've i've made that my my path and i can speak on it from experience but i don't have near the scientific background that you do so you know people ask me all the time can you build muscle on a ketogenic diet and i'm obviously you know in the camp that says yes you know look at these case studies um but from like a biological standpoint from a molecular standpoint what are what is the mechanics behind building muscle in your in your words especially in the state of, you know, nutritional ketosis? Yeah, well, I think uh, the state of nutritional ketosis is really shifting your metabolism to burn proportionally more fat and to some extent ketone bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, ketone bodies are sort of be used as fuel for the heart and the brain, like over time. And that's maybe the evolutionary advantage to ketosis with limited carbohydrate availability or limited food availability in total. Uh, so say if we're in a starvation state, the fat gets metabolized and broken down and used by the muscles. And then the liver burns the fat and makes these ketone bodies, which then become a major source of energy for the brain. So there's a sort of an evolutionary survival advantage going on there. Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of a calorie deficit, ketone bodies have pretty distinct anti-catabolic effects, which means that if you are dieting for a bodybuilding show or trying to make weight for a powerlifting meat or just trying to do recomposition your body, right? So it usually necessitates some kind of weight loss to get from point A to point B. And that you'll, the ketone bodies have a protein sparing effect. And it's my belief that, you know, doing a ketogenic approach, if it's done properly, has a protein sparing effect where you can retain more muscle over time. It depends sort of on the individual to some extent, but uh, it can be used as a tool in place of like the traditional, just calorie restricted, you know, bodybuilding diet where a lot of times, you know, you do restrict carbohydrates if you are sort of in that, in that situation. But I think a ketogenic diet has a distinct advantage because it helps to attenuate hunger and cravings. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, as I mentioned, I think the ketone bodies have, you know, unique health benefits, uh, including anti-catabolic and maybe anti-inflammatory effects too. And these are some of the things that we study in the lab. We know they have neuroprotective effects. So that's like, you know, you can, <laughs> that that's another advantage. Uh, people may or may not care about that, but I think in the context of what I study, neurological diseases, seizures, things like that, 
they, w without question, they, they have some distinct, you know, neuroprotective properties. Uh, and, you know, from my perspective, that's, that's an important thing to have too, you know, if you are just doing it for bodybuilding or body recomposition. Totally. I think one of the, the more controversial protocols that I've kind of implemented with my bodybuilding is, you know, when I get closer to, to a show, like when I'm a month out or so, I'll have my protein down surprisingly low, especially by bodybuilder standards. I mean, during my last competition prep, I got down to, you know, I think 70 or 80 grams of protein a day. But, and a yeah. lot of people, they'll have very high protein in the belief that that's going to be the best thing for sparing any muscle uh, in the context of a caloric deficit. But my argument was by having that very low protein and that elevated fat ratio, my ketone production was even more amplified. So I was in a more anti-catabolic state. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's definitely a fine line, uh, you know, with protein. Uh, I, I think that the baseline amount of protein that you need, like, you know, for bodybuilding, I would say it's, you know, at least one gram per kilogram. Mm -hmm. So I, like you, I've gotten down to 70 or 80, but felt that I rarely get under a hundred. And then on some days now, if I'm trying to gain weight, I will bump that up to like 150 or 200, maybe a couple times, once or twice a week, or something like that. Uh, but generally, I keep about 100 and maybe 100 to 120 grams of protein a day, and that's way that's about that's at least half of the amount that I consumed like 10 years ago. You know, yeah. right before I started the ketogenic diet, I was like. In some days, looking back at my old, I've always journaled and I'm a big believer in keeping a journal, mm -hmm. like personal journal and also uh, a weight training and diet journal. And there was days that I was like eating, you know, two, two pound London broils and like a dozen eggs and washing it down with like two or three metric shakes. <laughs> Something like, you know, there was days where I was like 500 grams of protein. You know, I was heavier, maybe 250, 260. And now I'm like maybe 220. Uh but uh, it was just a, a, a chore to just eat. I just felt like I was eating all the time. And now it's amazing to me that I could eat so little and still maintain any <laughs> degree of size and strength. I would have never predicted that, you know. And I think over time your body adapts to it. But, um, but one thing, logistically this diet has really saved me because I could put – so much less time, energy into food preparation, into eating, into cleaning up, you know, two or three meals a day, even in a gaining phase. Like if I'm in a, a weight loss or cutting phase, I'd probably drop down to like one or two meals a day on some days. Uh, and I just came off a three day fast, uh, just, you know, not too long ago, just like a week ago or less. And uh, it didn't really impact my strength at all. And I think that's a remarkable testament to ketones and just being able, being fat adapted. Yeah, fasting is interesting because I, I don't ever really recommend people fast if they're in a caloric deficit, but I think fasting periodically is you know great for all the health benefits. And I just finished my reverse diet. You know, I did a 12-week reverse diet, so now I'm up to, I don't know, I've been averaging like 4,500 calories a day. So I'm starting a five-day fast today, but I can do that without really having to worry about any loss in you know, strength. Whereas, you know, you tell a bodybuilder 10 years ago that you got to fast for several days. They just assume that all their muscles going to be gone. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You're doing a five day fast. You're going to do that. And that is that, do you have any calories during that time or is it completely just a water fast? 
it'll be just water and electrolytes. So I, I did a four and a half day fast about a year ago, and then I didn't do any fasting during the, my contest prep, which was about 21 weeks. And then the reverse diet, I didn't do any uh, fasting. I feel like, you know, fasting is very popular, but I feel like some people can, they kind of get in trouble with it because if they're chronically depleted in the first place, a lot of females, you know, they'll be just chronically under eating and then they'll want to do a fast on top of it and kind of shoot themselves in the foot, metabolically speaking. Uh, but yeah. now that I've reversed diet and I'm at, you know, a pretty significant caloric intake, I'm going to go ahead and do that five day fast just to, you know, reset things, kind of clean the slate and prepare for, you know, my next building phase basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great idea. Uh, yeah, I would never go into a fast like after a calorie restriction. Typically, uh, it's something good to do if I'm in a building phase. And and just prior to the last fast, I basically took the week off and got off of a ketogenic diet and was testing my glucose response to a wide variety of meal of uh, foods that I was curious, like watermelon and popcorn and uh, sweet potato, like things that I largely uh, have avoided completely, but mm -hmm. things, foods that I like, liked, you know, prior to going on the ketogenic diet. So I was curious how high I can get my glucose. And I was surprised I had really good carbohydrate tolerance. I maintained good carbohydrate tolerance even after pretty much avoiding them for a decade. Uh, so I was happy to see that, you know, uh, my carb tolerance. And I, I also took blood to measure insulin and I took that. I should be getting my my lab re results back like uh, in a day or two to see where my insulin was in response to to that stuff. Yeah, that'll be incredibly interesting data. Yeah. I, I want to dive into this because I feel like this is this is a hot topic right now, uh, especially in the ketogenic community. You know, people will argue that you need to have you know metabolic flexibility basically and consume carbs on a somewhat regular basis so that your body doesn't lose touch of how to process these carbohydrates, but I feel like our bodies are smarter than that. Like as you just illustrated, if you've been keto for ten years, then you reintroduce watermelons and sweet potatoes. It's not like your body forgets how to to uptake that glucose and use it properly. Yeah, like the same way our body knows how to fast, it kind of knows what to do. Uh, I think each individual is going to be a little bit different, but. Uh, I think if you were on a medical ketogenic diet, which would necessitate like a very high degree of carbohydrate restriction, even from like vegetables, like green vegetables. I mean, the, the, the patients, epilepsy patients that use the diet, need, it needs to be very restrictive. And over time, I think that could lead to what's known as like a physiological insulin resistance mm -hmm. where blood baseline blood glucose may trend a little bit higher but I think essentially what's happening is that because you're not getting the big glucose spikes, uh, the glucose level needs to be maintained at a certain level to maintain certain glycolytic processes, whether that be like kidney function or red blood cells and things like that. But if you were to look at like the total area under the curve for the day, uh, blood glucose would be lower just by virtue of eliminating or uh, greatly attenuating uh, spikes in glucose. Uh, and insulin. And one could say the same thing happens if you are on a high carb diet and you're a carb burner, mm -hmm. you become, instead of carbohydrate intolerant, you become fat intolerant. So you have fat <laughs> triglycerides floating around in your bloodstream because your body's preferred fuel is sugar and carbs almost exclusively. And it's not a good idea to have, you know, high triglycerides 
all the time. So you could sort of make the converse argument. Uh, I know there's some people that sort of debate, you know, the uh, if, if this is a dangerous thing to be physiologically insulin resistant or to have, you know, elevated blood glucose, uh, but usually the numbers are not, you know, uh, very high. Sometimes you have this scenario where, you know, it, it can be kind of high, even when you exercise, it can shoot up. But typically, if someone does this and restricts your calories. Sometimes if you're on a ketogenic diet and you have surplus amount of calories, you can see some weird things going on. Uh, so that's why I kind of say, if you're into bodybuilding and you want to go into a gaining phase, it may be good just to titrate in some low glycemic carbs. And, you know, I'm really a firm believer in low carb diets, but it doesn't take much carbs at all to keep those glycolytic systems up and running. So there's a, there's an enzyme that regulates a lot of this. It's called pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the carb carbohydrate uh, proponents will say, you know, you are inhibiting the PDH complex so you can totally knock out your glycolytic anaerobic capacity, but it only takes a very little amount of uh, glucose and carbohydrates to keep that system up and running. So you don't really get a, a, you know, a measurable deficit in PDH protein or even the catalytic activity unless carbohydrates are fairly significantly uh, reduced. So for me, that kind of translates to getting upwards of like 50 to a hundred grams of carbs a day sometimes, but relatively low glycemic index and to the point where I'm actually in a, still in a state of mild ketosis, you know, especially in the end of the day. Uh, so maybe that's because I've been doing that. I've maintained my insulin sensitivity and carb tolerance over time. And I can't say I didn't wear a continuous glucose monitor and do a whole lot of testing when I was on a super strict ketogenic diet 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. We just didn't, I didn't really have the technologies then to measure these things, but I sort of attribute my good carbo, my great carbohydrate tolerance just to, well, being active, that's a big, a major factor, but maybe adding a little bit of carbs back in, like just a little bit of fruit like berries, I have some dark chocolate and usually have like, you know, some salads or low glycemic vegetables each day. So something like a, like a dark leafy green salad with, you know, homegrown vegetables and some dark chocolate that would totally check that box. I mean, you don't need to necessarily go and have a bunch of sweet potatoes or or rice by any means. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, if I'm going to quantify it, it would be like a half a cup of wild blueberries. Mm-hmm. I buy the bags of blueberries. Uh, we have, uh, yeah, that and one or two like cubes or squares of dark chocolate, a salad uh, with cucumbers, mixed greens, actually just a couple, like a half dozen like little cherry tomatoes. Sometimes I'll cut those up, some olives. Uh what else? I mean, I don't eat, uh, sometimes if fruits in season, I'll have a little bit here and there, but mm-hmm. that's generally what I just described would be like my whole carb intake for the day. <laughs> yeah. And you're, I mean, you're active working on the farm and training. So, I mean, that's probably going to be a little bit lower for someone that it's more sedentary, but even with you doing what you're doing, I mean, that's not a large, large amount of carbohydrates by most people's standards. No, it's not. And I did, you know, a day or two where I went to like 200 grams. I think one day I did 250. Mm-hmm. And I think my my glucose just maybe got up to 120 at the most. And I had, 
But what I did notice at nighttime, my glucose was running higher at nighttime. Mm-hmm. And then my morning glucose definitely trended to be higher. And, uh, you know, when I do eat carbs, I tend to eat it at night at the end of the day. I tend to be, you know, if I work out, it's typically going to be later in the day. So it's, I'm doing like a low carb backloading, if you mm-hmm. could say that. So it's like yeah. carbohydrates, but I proportionally get them. Uh, I, I, I could say that I avoid eating them uh, early in the day, but what my seat, my continuous glucose monitor basically inform me of is, is that if I do get the carbohydrates in earlier in the day, I do have pretty, like my glucose comes down really quick. I have very rapid glucose disposal in the morning and I probably have less cravings at night. So, you know, I may, the next experiment that I do, I'm going to do another CGM experiment and I might just, you know, try carbohydrates in the morning and just see what that does. Uh, And maybe see, maybe do it long. I didn't do it long enough to really have a training effect, but maybe do it for a two week experiment. Uh, And I would use like squash, like butternut squash, or uh, a sweet potato or something like that and not go too crazy. It'd be like very regimented, like, you know, 50 to hundred grams of carbs in the morning. And then maybe whatever carbs I had at nighttime, just proportionally like get them in the morning and see how that works just as an experiment. Have you noticed, like I, I have a CGM as well. And I noticed that my, obviously during training, it would spike pretty, pretty rapidly in, in my, uh, it would also spike obviously first thing in the morning especially if I had a large bolus of protein the night prior. Like if I've, like right now I've been eating, you know, 4,500 plus calories. I'll have a large portion. The most majority of my protein comes, you know, about an hour or two before I go to sleep. But I'll notice a pretty significant rise in glucose, you know, by the time I wake up. Uh, yeah, I do notice that if I pro- protein bolus, like at nighttime, or just calories in general too, it, it trends to be high during sleep. Uh, I do think of sleep as a restorative process where I want to make nutrients available because there's, you know, regeneration happening in the muscle. Your body is in uh, more of a parasympathetic stage, you know, whereas when you're awake, your sympathetic nervous system is activated and you're more like expending energy and burning. And where at nighttime, I think of nighttime as being kind of more anabolic, right? Mm -hmm. So you have, I know for, from a neuroscience perspective, you're regenerating neurotransmitters, even glycogen and the astrocytes of the brain. And for muscles, I think a lot of skeletal muscle protein synthesis and even, uh, you know, muscle glycogen replenishment, which still happens on the ketogenic diet, uh, is happening at nighttime. So it may not be a bad thing uh, to, to trend a little bit higher glucose at nighttime and to make that substrate available for recovery and regeneration. So it's just an idea instead of, for example, ending your last meal at like three or four in the afternoon, you know, like some people do and then waking up and like getting nutrition in the morning. Uh, but I encourage people to experiment and some of the data indicates it might be better to eat, you know, as the sun comes up during that early morning hour and not eat at night. But I think it really comes down. What's most important is just like, you have a system that kind of works with your schedule, right? So I think uh, for me, I like to do a lot of cognitive stuff in the morning. And if I eat (laughs) a lot of food in the morning, I just don't have 
the the mental clarity that right. I need to really and sort of the cognitive wherewithal to, to get my work done. I feel a lot of it depends like on training times too. Like like I personally train, you know, fairly early in the morning and if I eat, you know, prior to training I just don't have near the 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 workout that I do if I basically yeah. eat the night before and then have that meal fuel the next day's training session. Yeah, I used to do that too. When I was in college, uh, I would work out on campus and I would drive, leave the house real early, like 5.30 in the morning and get there and be training by like 6.30 or 7 mm -hmm. when the gym was opening. And, uh, you know, I could fall back into that schedule again. It's just sometimes my wife and I, we just, uh, we tend to like stay up a little bit later, not super late, but maybe like 11 or 12-ish on some days. Uh, but... You know, and some days, yeah, I just, sometimes my mind is very clear in the morning. So that's why I need to, I feel like I need to, uh, you know, do more desk work in the morning, but I could, I could definitely, you know, look into training in the morning and I'd like to see how my glucose numbers would compare to yours. Uh, but I do see that spike that you mentioned, you know, with training, the more protein that I had hours before the night before, mm -hmm. I definitely proportional glucose spike yeah i've noticed especially if my i try and keep my fat grams you know equal to or greater than protein grams at a given meal i feel like if my protein ever exceeds fat i notice that spike being much more pronounced yeah yeah i could say the same thing so yep. with with this talk of you know having a certain amount of carbohydrate intake through at the course of a day from vegetables and whatnot what do you think could be like a long-term effect of you know people following a strict carnivorous diet i know that's got gained a lot of popularity and i think there's a lot of efficacy there from like a you know healing you know your gut or something like that but there's not a whole lot of uh i've actually got sean baker coming on the podcast after you here so it's kind of interesting follow-up question for him um but what's your take on just one's ability to uh become more physiological insulin resistant if they're following a strict carnivore diet i guess is a good way to word that yeah you know what uh, i see a lot of people have a strong reaction for or against uh a carnivore approach mm -hmm. and uh you know i could say when i was in a in a nutrition science program and if that idea was presented to me i'd probably have a pretty strong negative opinion towards it but having you know just from a, a physiologist perspective, from the nutrition science that I know, and from talking with people who have used this and advocate for it, uh, I think it's an effective tool. I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that it's not great to do all the time. Like some days I am on a keto carnivore diet. Some days like I will only today, the only thing I've had so far is three quarter pound of grass fed beef. Mm -hmm. Like that's all I had. And maybe, uh, depending on how the day pans out, it's kind of a busier day for me. Like I may have absolutely no, I think I have some liver, like chicken liver and stuff that I'm going to have tonight. And, and maybe uh, I think we're out of vegetables because we're traveling soon. So I, today will be like a carnivore diet to me. I, I think there is a, a distinct advantage to doing that occasionally. So what I would not be in favor of is doing this 24 seven all the time, because I do think, there are some advantages to getting other forms of nutrition, whether it be either just from a pleasurable standpoint or even from a micronutrient standpoint. I think there are some advantages. 
But I would even say for myself, I may do better and sometimes I do feel better when I eliminate vegetables, even fruits and vegetables and just eat completely, you know, a fatty steak and maybe some organ meat. My wife's Hungarian, so that's like normal for us. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I feel less bloated. I get better digestion. I even have more energy sometimes. Uh, and people keep telling me to do that and to go completely uh, carnivore. And maybe I will. But for me, I think I just enjoy, uh, you know, I enjoy coffee. I don't know if you could have that on, but I enjoy it like, you know, berries, a little bit of dark chocolate, mm -hmm. some asparagus, some arugula salad, uh, something like that. And I just, even if it's like as a garnish, even if I have a huge steak and just like some, a small amount of arugula salad on the side, just as like a garnish, it's like, I enjoy that. You know, so it may be kind of hard, but when I'm traveling and I'll be traveling coming up soon, I tend to pr stick pretty, pretty, uh, completely carnivore on the days that I travel, especially if I travel international. Uh, I think it's less of a risk to eat like, you know, salads and vegetables and stuff when you're on the other side of the planet, like in Asia, especially. <laughs> so a lot of times I will just stick completely to kind of a meat diet when I'm traveling. Yeah, I think there's a lot less GI discomfort that comes with sticking to predominantly, you know, carnivore-style approach. But, I mean, yeah. personal preference, like if people just crave salad, you know, it's weird that people feel guilty eating salads now if they're trying to go carnivore. Um, you know, I don't think necessarily people need to take it that far. But I don't know that there's any, like from a performance athlete standpoint, I don't know that I've noticed any tangible benefit from veggies and greens, like, in my training Whereas obviously I'm getting a lot of energy and you know fuel from the steak as the staple yeah. of the meal. Um, on that subject, do, from like a performance standpoint alone, like if you're in a caloric surplus, if you're training, you know, progressive overload, you're checking off all those boxes in order to build muscle. Do you find that you are in any way, shape, or form inhibited by having very minimal carbohydrate? I mean. You have some throughout the course of your meals just because those are the foods you enjoy eating, but you're not probably using that as your primary fuel, obviously. So do you feel like you're inhibited in your ability to build and sustain muscle by not having a larger portion of carbohydrates? Uh, what I noticed is that carbohydrates, you know, allow will cause some water retention mm -hmm. and fluid retention. And I think the cellular leverage sort of that you get from that, the fullness that you get from just adding some carbohydrates back in, uh, I had not done that for so long. And then when I added some sweet potato and, uh, you know, some popcorn in and did this over the course of just like a couple days, mm -hmm. uh, it was interesting to see uh, the effect in the mirror. So, you know, I was definitely more full and a little less sharp, you know, holding a little bit of water. But um, but what I noticed is that some of my pressing movements, I was a little bit more explosive. And I, I got like one or two extra reps, you know, maybe at the end of the week of doing that. And I did notice, although a five-day or a three-day fast did not impair my deadlift uh, strength, mm -hmm. uh, at least, you know, one set thing when I did the next day uh, I was still a little bit depleted uh, my bench press strength went down about 20% so that was kind of noticeable you know it just don't have that snap on the bottom you know so I think what carbohydrates can do you know just 
I think, you know, you're adding carbs back in on a keto diet. It's almost like an alternative fuel. Mm-hmm. And it, the advantage are maybe twofold is that it's, it's a fuel, but it's also allowing you to hold uh, a little bit more water in the form of glycogen and fluid in the muscle. And that extra fullness uh, contributes to cellular leverage. Uh, I guess the term I would use that can help facilitate, you know, uh, strength training. Uh, but I'd have to, you know, it's been so long since I've, uh, you know, really eaten carbohydrates. It might be a good experiment to just do it for three or four weeks and just to monitor my strength progress and cycle it back. And I primarily do a ketogenic diet, you know, not for bodybuilding reasons or not for powerlifting reasons or anything like that. I just do it because part of the research that I do. So I'm Mm -hmm. constantly trying to learn about different approaches and, uh, and for me, I do, I feel better and I just have, you know, more energy and I just kind of, and that, that, that's really the reason why I don't do it, uh, sort of for bodybuilding reasons, although it has not hurt my strength. Uh, and I think it's easier to stay lean on a ketogenic diet for sure. Yeah, totally. I feel like, like for me personally, being a bodybuilder, you know, there is an argument for being able to put more muscle on leveraging carbohydrates but i feel like it if that is the case it'd be such a minuscule amount you know my argument's always been that even if you gain a little bit more muscle in the course of your building phase using carbohydrates you know when i've got a competitor that's using carbs and then they cut down and i'm cutting down i'm in a more anti-catabolic state being in ketosis so while they're losing a little bit more muscle in the deficit i'm sustaining that muscle that I've built. So when the the smoke settles and the dust clears and you step on stage, I don't feel like they would have built any more muscle leveraging carbs to show through on show day. Yeah. Yeah. I think as long as your protein, as long as it's equilibrated for protein, I mean, you can derive energy from carbs or fat. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think there's distinct advantages to just kind of pushing your body to, to be a fat burner. Uh, that's not to say there may not be some, you know, advantages to small amount of carbohydrates in and around your workout. And when I say small, I mean like 20, maybe 25 grams, like something like that. It doesn't take much, you know, to gain a, a lot of benefit, I think, especially when you're so uh, insulin sensitive, you know, once you go low carb, especially if you're in a calorie deficit, you become very sensitive uh, to insulin and a little bit of carbohydrates can go a long way. Um, and it doesn't have to be like Gatorade or something like that. I mean, it could be, you know, like a little bit of sweet potato or dark chocolate or something like that in and around your workout. Uh, so I encourage people to just like experiment with that and see kind of how, how they can leverage and work with that. Uh, again, I think, you know, the main advantage for me is that I can just go long periods of time and not get hungry and maintain focus. And for my job, I kind of have to do that. A lot mm-hmm. of times, and sometimes I just don't have time to eat, say if I'm lecturing or say we're in like doing experiments in the animal facility or something, you can't like have food in there. And uh, like in the past, I remember when I first started doing this diet, I was doing long experiments, you know, in the lab in an environment where you can't really eat, or it would be a major inconvenience to stop what you're doing, mm-hmm. the experiment, and have to go out into an area where you can eat. So that that's, and I just kind of, you know, I like those advantages. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that alone is is argument enough for me to stay keto. Like, 
from a lifestyle perspective alone and, and just productivity, I feel like my, my mental clarity is much better. Um, I mean, I don't feel like my performance has suffered whatsoever. I feel like I recover faster, so my training frequency is only improved. Uh, but I mean, what really excites me is all the, the advancements in the neurological department with, with keto. So like you're on the cutting edge of that. What, what's got you excited in that regard? Yeah, so uh, a lot of what we do is funded by the Office of Navy Research, and uh, the main thrust of what we do is to develop a ketogenic metabolic therapy uh, that can be used in a warfighter. Mm-hmm. And the, the advantage is uh, what we call performance resilience. <clears throat> so being able to allow the fighter to maintain a certain level of performance in an environment that they would otherwise, you know, be having a seizure in, which would definitely decrease performance, right? right. So, uh, so basically, to protect the brain from uh, preventing a seizure and to sharpen things like reactive time, uh, cognitive resilience, uh, some of the things that we're looking at now uh, with, with with DARPA in a in a future project uh, that got delayed because of the COVID nineteen thing, is what we call team cognition. And we think maybe things like that could be impacted. So if you have people that have, you know, more stable metabolic parameters and uh, more stable energy, that they'll function together better as a team. And that's kind of called team cognition. So we're sort of interested in exploring that aspect of, uh, of research. Um, but, you know, there's also this sort of long-term implications to being exposed to a a oxidative environment, whether it's an undersea environment or a space environment. In a space environment, you're subjected to things called galactic cosmic radiation that can be uh, damaging uh, to the brain and brain structures over time, and it maybe even make you more susceptible to things like cancer because it causes like uh, nicks, double-stranded nicks to the DNA, and that could cause genetic uh, instability. So we think that, you know, leveraging ketones to enhance and preserve brain energy metabolism, uh, but also maybe facilitate DNA repair mechanisms. And we know that ketone bodies have epigenetic functions, uh, at least in animal models, where they stimulate the production and activity of enzymes that may be protecting the body. So this includes things like superoxide dismutase and catalase. And so when these enzymes are elevated and there's oxidative stress, it would be uh, your body is more capable of uh, being more resilient if these endogenous antioxidant systems are upregulated. And the animal data at least suggests that that would be the case. So, uh, so we are doing in our lab a bunch of you know, studies on different rodent models using rats and mice and model systems to look at different diseases. Uh, We also do human research at Duke University where we have human subjects in a state of ketosis or not in a state of ketosis subjected to environmental extremes to push them to the edge of a seizure. And we have them instrumented to look at every single, many variables that you can think of like blood gases, metabolites, uh, EEG activity. We have them pedaling a bike. They're using a simulator. So we get like reaction time, decision-making, cognitive processes. And we do this in a pressurized environment that simulates like uh, 
you know, uh, a Navy SEAL dive or a deep sea diver scenario. And we do that in the context of the standard diet and we do that in the context of the ketogenic diet. So that's sort of the research that's ongoing now. And actually it was the last call that I got off of right before jumping on with you, talking to our collaborators there and just getting an update on that project. And, and you're doing this, uh, you're testing people that are keto adapted through nutritional protocol and then also using exogenous ketones. Like are you taking uh, people that are not following a nutritional you know, ketogenic diet but then given the exogenous ketones to see how that stacks up against people that are following the diet? Yeah, good question. What the protocol we're doing now, we plan to do like a, a keto adaptation protocol, mm -hmm. sort of on review now. But the protocol that we have been doing, that we're doing now, is to bring people in and then adapt them, if you could say it's an adaptation. But uh, we had to get it past the ethics review, so they were, they were okay with three days. So we basically had them work with a dietitian and get them into a state of nutritional ketosis to where they need to you know, qualify to get a certain ketone level, and it's really not that high. Uh, typically they, they get to about one millimolar 0.8 to one. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, on the third day, so they do, they've entered this state of ketosis and from an epilepsy perspective, that's kind of when it starts working. And then prior to getting into the hyperbaric chamber environment and doing the actual experiment an hour before they will consume a ketone supplement that's beta hydroxybutyrate and medium chain triglyceride combination. Uh, before. So they have, you know, their semi-adapted uh, ketogenic diet that's a modified ketogenic diet. So they're in a very a mild state of ketosis and they consume uh, a supplement just prior to getting into the chamber to do the experiment. And then, then the other, the other uh, as a comparison, uh, we try to pick subjects that are sort of naive to the ketogenic diet so we can assess whether it's working, mm -hmm. right? And then they will, uh, you know, they'll be called in at another time just following their standard diet. And then, then we can compare the ketogenic response to their standard diet response. And there's a pretty pronounced uh, difference for those that are more adapted. Yeah. Uh, so the data is statistically significant. And now we're only about, I guess we've ran about 50% of the subjects. So it is statistically significant. I think about a 40% increase uh, somewhere around that now was the latest. Um, and that's even with a ketogenic diet that's only three days and they're mm -hmm. barely really in a state of ketosis. Like I think 0.8 was their ketone levels. So what I'm excited about now is that we have a particular ketone ester product that could make that three to five times higher, the ketone levels, and it's got FDA approval recently. So once we complete this, I think it's important to do this protocol first, uh, but now we're kind of set up nicely to go and do a human subject trial with a ketone ester that we have observed to be very neuroprotective in this environment, at least with a lot of rat data. So uh, we're excited to do that. We're, we're excited to get this project done and to look at the results, but then follow up with a ketone ester experiment. Gotcha. And, and to rewind to what you were saying earlier about the epigenetic effect and more neurological resilience, that, that equates or translates to basically, you know, in layman's terms, if my wife and I are both keto, we can have super babies, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, maybe. So we know a lot of epigenetic changes 
happen in utero. Mm -hmm. And uh, these can be really important changes. So, um, you know, we study uh, a disease actually called Kabuki syndrome. And there are other diseases, neurometabolic diseases, where the mother may have through genetic testing learned that their child has a particular uh, neurometabolic disease. And the therapy for that disease could be the ketogenic diet, right? So like some of these are like glucose transporter type one deficiency syndrome, pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency syndrome. They have big long names, but, uh, but the ketogenic diet would be the standard of care once that child is born. Well, it makes sense to me, and I think experiments need to be done, although funding agencies are not really you know, throwing money at this idea yet, the, the experiments seem to be done where the baby in utero can start therapy. If we know a particular you know, disease process inhibits brain metabolism, but the mother is on a ketogenic diet, then they could be uh, enhancing you know, developmental processes that could be very beneficial. And one of the things that we study is called Kabuki syndrome, where there's sort of the therapy now is an epigenetic drug, a drug that it's called a histone deacetylase inhibitor. Mm -hmm. And ketone bodies kind of function as histone deacetylase inhibitors. So it kind of makes sense that this therapy could be started earlier in utero. And that could be the case for just normal, healthy uh, mothers too. Although I would not go out on a limb yet and say, you know, mothers should be doing a ketogenic diet because I think you know, the, the process, even breastfeeding, uh, you know, it's a very energy dependent process. And I think there's sort of a risk associated with doing, having a calorie deficit or maybe hormones being altered in some way that could be beneficial. I think it's, I think it's important to follow a healthy low carb diet, but a ketogenic diet is rather extreme, I think. And I've, we've noticed this in mothers that try to breastfeed where they're maybe their lack the uh, prolactin levels will be down and it just can't make the breast milk they they typically need to make to nurse is um, that independent uh like so if they're in a caloric surplus but they're following a ketogenic diet would that hedge the bets there yeah i think it is due into a large part to uh to that but but I could tell you that I've had feedback, even from my research associate who is on her child now, just gave birth uh, about two months ago, that even when she was on a, a ketogenic diet that was not calorie restricted, she had uh, problems, uh, even just with a low carb diet, uh, being able to make breast milk. So I think, I think each mother is individual, although I've gotten plenty of emails from moms who gave perfectly gave birth to robustly healthy, you know, babies on a ketogenic diet and continue nursing on a ketogenic diet and do perfectly fine. But I think there seems to be, especially when you have, you know, people reporting that they don't make milk on carbohydrate restriction, even mm -hmm. without calorie restriction, and then they make milk fine if they just add some carbohydrates back in. That's interesting. I, I would have to assume a lot of it depends on, you know, one's level of adaptation to like their length of adaptation. Cause I feel like there's a yeah. pronounced difference between, you know, being keto adapted for six months versus say six years, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. It, then that becomes your, your normal, you know, physiology. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I could sit here and talk with you all day long, but <laughs> we've been going an hour and I know you got some, some cows to feed now probably, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm at, I'm at work now, but yeah, I'm going to head home and we have our routine with, with the cows and they look forward to seeing us and we look forward to seeing them. So, uh, but yeah, that'll be my routine after this. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I certainly have enjoyed uh, taking the time talking with you. If there's anything I can do, definitely let me know and uh, keep in touch, sir. Where can people go to find out more about you? Great. Well, thank you for having me, Robert. If people want to learn more about me and, and what we're doing, uh, tell them to go or please go to ketonutrition.org, ketonutrition.org, uh, all one word. And on there, I have everything from my podcasts. You know, I'll definitely I'll put this one up there. And uh, I have, you know, foods and, and nutritional supplements. I don't have my own uh, supplements or anything like that, but I test things and I put in the ones that I like, I put it up there. And by the way, I love the keto brick. Oh, so awesome. I'm testing that now. Uh, it's an awesome, uh, it's an awesome food product and it's going to definitely coming with me on my trip too. It's super convenient when you're traveling. So, uh, so yeah, if people are interested in like, you know, cool products like that, uh, check that out. We also have like diet consultants and stuff on there. A lot of people ask me to consult, uh, and sometimes I can do it, but I'm, my bandwidth is kind of limited, but I do have uh, a wide range of clinical dietitians and, uh, just fitness dietitians on there too. Well, I will certainly link out to that and make it easy for people to find you again. I just want to say thank you because you are seriously paving the way for some just massive advancements in this field. And I know you've certainly changed my life trajectory. So I'm sure that many others can say the same. So just thanks again for everything you're doing. Well, I appreciate that, Robert. Yeah. And thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Take care.